0: can remember, um, well, quite a few years ago now, my wife and I visiting both the National Gallery and the Tate Modern in London just one day when we had some time there. And um, there's some of the paintings were so incredibly large. (laughs) They were like the size of the the side of a house, some of them it seemed like. And if you were anywhere near them, they almost just seemed like a mess. You couldn't really make out what was going on. These are the kinds of paintings where you, you've got to get way back in order just to take the whole thing in, and then you begin to see the beauty of it. What, what's going on there? You know, the text that we're looking at today invites us to do a step back, uh, to take a take a look at the bigger picture. We might say the bigger picture of God's plans, and it calls us to live with that bigger picture in view. Now, if you're just visiting today. Uh, or you're just checking out this Christianity thing, you're not really quite sure what you think of it yet. Um, this text might seem pretty weird. Uh, it's just, or different at least. See, we don't often talk about in our broader culture, um, the idea of history as though it's going somewhere, as if there's any sort of plan as to, to where history might be actually ending up. Perhaps this is because from a secular frame or viewpoint, we are just here by accident. So it hardly makes sense to say that there was a plan to history. A plan would require a planner. But if there is a God, like Christians claim, then it would make sense that history actually has a point, a purpose that God is guiding it toward. And I think that's incredibly Good news. Because it means this. It means that the the universe isn't an accident and you and I are not an accident within it. God has a plan to make right the whole of what has been broken and distorted and unraveled. As we've been seeing, as we've been studying Matthew's gospel, um, this way that this Jesus follower, Matthew, uh, he wrote down this story of Jesus. As we've been seeing throughout our study of this gospel, God is going to make all things new under his loving leadership. This, the gospel of Matthew calls, the kingdom of heaven. The other gospel writers often call it the kingdom of God. It's talking about the same thing there. But then, as we start to think about that, we ask the question, when? When will that kingdom come? When will that become reality? This text begins to explore that with us. So let's listen into Matthew chapter 24. And just as a heads up, um, today I'm just going to take a little bit more time than I usually do. And so sit back and enjoy the ride. Maybe <laughs> you're allowed to laugh at that point because it could be like, maybe this wasn't a good idea to come today. I don't know. No, it is. It definitely is. All right. This is the word of the Lord, Matthew 24. Jesus left the temple and was walking away when his disciples came up to him to call his attention to the buildings. In Mark's gospel, we read that they're saying things like, isn't it magnificent? You know, if they had social media, their Insta feed would just be full of pictures of the temple at this point. They're impressed at what they see. Then Jesus asks, do you see these things? And of course, they just pointed them out. So yeah, they do actually. He said, truly, I tell you, not one stone will be left on another. Everyone will be thrown down. Wow, that's a sobering statement. And just notice where Jesus is. He is walking away from the temple as he says this. He's essentially stating this whole thing, it's over now. And he walks away. Really? Really? This section is the climax of what's been happening in the temple since chapter 21. Jesus has been at the temple in conversation, especially with the religious leaders. And when we go back to Matthew 21, we saw Jesus rides into Jerusalem as its true king. And he gets to the temple. And what does he find there is that in the court of the Gentiles, where people were meant to be able to come and pray, he sees a whole bunch of tables set up. For selling and changing money. And so he begins to flip these over and says, my house is to be a house of prayer. And in that action, he's beginning to say, it looked like this was a fruitful place, but look at, it's not bearing the fruit that God had intended it to. And so as he's leaving the city that day, he sees a fig tree and he goes over it because he's hungry and it's full of, of leaves. It looks like a good tree and he finds it's got no fruit on it. So he curses the fig tree and it withers instantly. Now we wonder, what is that about? We talked about this a couple weeks ago. This is Jesus' judgment on the temple. He's just been to the temple. All this busy activity looks like it's a fruitful place to be, but he goes and looks and finds there's no fruit here. It is not bearing the fruit that God was calling it to bear. And he's essentially saying the temple now, as we read in this text, what was once the center point of God's presence on earth will no longer be. The very end of chapter 23, just the verses that come right before we start today, Jesus is is weeping as he looks at the city of Jerusalem, which has, to this point, essentially rejected his leadership. He weeps over it and says this, look, your house is left to you desolate. Then the next thing he says is, even this temple, not one stone will be left on the other. The temple, which was the earthly focal point of God's presence, will not be any longer. In fact, Jesus, who is God come in the flesh, is fully God and fully human at the same time. He is the overlap of heaven and earth. He will now be the place where humanity meets the living God. You see, when Jesus dies on the cross, and I pointed this out a few weeks ago too, he bears our sins on himself so we can be clean, and free, and the moment he does that, the moment he gives up his life, we find that the temple, the curtain in the temple, is divided in two. This shows that through Jesus' death, anyone and everyone can have full access to forgiveness and a relationship with the living God. It's this event, Jesus' death and resurrection, where Jesus can speak now of his enthronement as the king of the world. You see, at Jesus' trial, at, at this very moment, the you know, hours before he's sent to the cross, we read this in Matthew 26, verse 64. Jesus is being addressed by the high priest, and he says back to him, from now on, you will see the Son of Man sitting at the right hand of the Mighty One and coming on the clouds of heaven. When? From now on. And now you have to know that Jesus is quoting from the book of Daniel, chapter 7, right here. So Jesus, he says to the high priest that he is the son of man, this enigmatic figure in in Daniel, chapter 7, who will receive all authority. And from now on, you will see him coming on the clouds of heaven. Jesus says that, yes, he is the king who is now enthroned. That's the big message of Matthew's gospel. Who's the king? Jesus is the king. But now he's, pardon me, but how (laughs) will he take up that kingship? That's what surprises everyone. He conquers and wins the victory by laying his life down. And we know that Jesus achieves this victory when we see at the very end of Matthew's gospel, following the resurrection, again, Jesus uses the Daniel language and he says this of himself, all authority in heaven and on earth have been given to me. So yes, Jesus is now the reigning king of the kingdom. And so any place where Jesus reigns as king, if it's in your life or over our church, the kingdom of God is already present. It has come, Jesus says, but it is still to come in all its fullness. It's not in its fullness come yet. It is already and not yet. And so Jesus, he's just predicted the destruction of the temple. And then his disciples are curious. They recognize that he's claimed to be king, but how will this come about? Look at verse 3. As Jesus was sitting on the Mount of Olives, the disciples came to him privately, tell us. They said, when will this happen? Now, what is this? destruction of the temple. They haven't changed topics yet. They've just walked away. They've heard Jesus say this. When will this happen? When will the destruction of the temple take place? Ah. And, another question, what will be the sign of your coming and of the end of the age? We have to hit pause for a moment. We might assume that they're talking about two things, the destruction of the temple and Jesus' second coming. We have to remember, however, at this point, the disciples, they haven't accepted that Jesus is going anywhere yet. They expect him to set up an earthly reign right there in their midst. What they're thinking is this. Maybe this whole destruction, the temple he's talking about, maybe that's the moment, that's the sign that Jesus will now begin to reign as king. And Jesus will answer their question. Yes, he will. But importantly, he will actually separate these two events. He will separate the destruction of the temple from his coming in all its fullness. This text, therefore, is a challenging one to interpret. Um, To know when is Jesus speaking about the destruction of the temple, and when does he talk about the end of time when he fully establishes the kingdom of God? Now, before we go any further, I have to state this right up front. One of the central or core beliefs of the Christian faith is that Jesus will return in power and glory. At this time, he will remove all evil and all who persist in wanting to do evil and who don't trust in his in Jesus. And he will set up his peaceful kingdom of God in all its fullness. And this return, it won't be in any sense a mystery. You will not miss it. You will know about it clearly. See, in Acts chapter one, we hear that after Jesus' death and resurrection, he's been hanging out with his disciples. He's been teaching them about the kingdom. And then... Lo and behold, he ascends to the Father. He, go, he goes back up to heaven. And the disciples, they're watching this happen. They're standing, they're stunned. Their, their jaws kind of slack and half open. And then two men dressed in white, they say this, why do you stand there looking into the sky? This same Jesus who's been taken from you into heaven will come back in the same way as you've seen him go into heaven. So what are these angelic uh, figures saying? Jesus will come again and it will be unmistakable, visible, bodily, in his glory, can't miss it. And here in our text, Jesus wants his followers not to be confused by what's happening around them. He doesn't want us to be confused either. You know, whenever we begin to talk about things that deal with the future that we haven't seen yet, there is potential for great confusion. People can be distracted as well from what really matters as followers of Jesus. As scholar Leon Morris aptly reminds us, we shouldn't think about this passage as simply a demonstration of Jesus' power to forecast the future. It was a series of prophecies designed to help believers. And so that's what we're going to be listening for this morning. How did these help believers both in the first century and believers now? How is he still helping us? So as we jump into the rest of this text, I'm aware that there are lots of different ways of reading this. In fact, um, I read five, four of them were really technical, five commentaries on this passage this week, and lo and behold, all five of them disagreed with each other at fairly significant points in how to understand this text. So as a pastor, you're sitting there going, okay, these folks, they're way smarter than I am, and they're putting out some pretty Good ideas, interesting ideas, and you know, I read one and go, oh, that sounds good, yeah, and then I read another and go, oh, yeah, well, that's different, but also sounds good. So you have to know this. Um, well, I've listed three major approaches to the passage on your handout as well. I'm not going to talk through those, but you have to know, I am personally wrestling with quite what to make of Matthew chapter 24. Um, I don't have this nailed down. I've got a master's degree and a doctorate in biblical studies, and I am struggling to make sense of this text. And so I just say that to, to let you know, sometimes reading this is actually quite challenging. Um, I'm going to do my best to tell you what I think makes best sense in its first context. Um, but here's what I would say as well. You might disagree with how I approach this, and that's actually just fine. Because within Christianity, there can be flexibility around questions of, of the details But I would remind you, the core element is Jesus will return visibly, bodily, and without any mystery involved whatsoever in the end. And we need to live as his followers, faithful to him in light of his coming. That much is critical and clear and should make our hearts rejoice. So what really matters today is how do we live in light of Jesus' future coming? That's applicable to all of us. So let's listen in. Remember, Jesus is answering the question to his disciples. When will the destruction of the temple happen? And when will we know about when you finally consummate the kingdom and it's all all its fullness? That's what he's answering. So, verse 4. Jesus answered, watch out that no one deceives you. For many will come in my name, claiming I'm the Messiah, and will deceive many. You'll hear of wars and rumors of wars, but see to it that you're not alarmed. Such things must happen, but the end is still to come. Nation will rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom. There will be famines and earthquakes in various places. All of these are the beginning of the birth pains. Then you, and who is you in this text? Who is he speaking to? He's actually talking to his disciples in that moment still, isn't he? Has he changed that? No. Then you will be handed over to be persecuted and put to death. You'll be hated by all nations because of me. Jesus has already told his disciples that this would happen back in Matthew chapter 5, and it is applicable to them in that moment. Many of Jesus' first followers were killed brutally because of their commitment and faithfulness to Jesus. This is still applicable today as well. At that time, many will turn away from the faith and will betray and hate each other. And many false prophets will appear and deceive many people. Because of the increase of wickedness, the love of most will grow cold. But the one who stands firm to the end will be saved. And this gospel of the kingdom will be preached in the whole world as a testimony to all nations. And then the end will come. Jesus cares for his disciples by helping them to understand that their future is actually going to be a painful one. And it is. And the history books show us that. But then Jesus says, these are only the beginning of the birth pains. There is still more to come before I come. This brings up the question for Christian readers, of course. like, When are the end times? When are the last days? Paul picks up on this same theme. As he writes in a letter to Timothy, he says this, but mark this. There will be terrible days, terrible times in the last days. Ah, Last days, that's what he's speaking about. Let's listen. People will be lovers of themselves, lovers of money, boastful, proud, abusive, disobedient to their parents, ungrateful, unholy, without love, unforgiving, slanderous, without self-control, brutal, not lovers of the good, treacherous, rash, conceited, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God, having a form of godliness, but denying its power. And some of you are thinking, wow, Dave, that sounds like our moment right now. And you would be right. It really is a description of our moment right now. But listen to what Paul says next too. Have nothing to do with such people. When? He's writing in the first century and he calls that the last days. Paul then goes on to give examples of people in that moment who are like that, who are living that way. The point is, I hope you can see, that Paul, writing in the first century, speaks of his own days as the last days, like the end of times. And that is how the New Testament describes the end of days. It's any time between the ascension of Jesus and the return of Jesus. Any time between those times is the last days, is the end times. And so Jesus is now preparing his disciples for a time of great suffering, and he's encouraging them for what will come when the destruction of Jerusalem comes in just a few decades. He says this, stand firm. Don't be deceived. Don't panic. Stay the course, even to the end of your life if need be. And for many of them, they did. Stay the course to the end of their life in that they were killed for their faith. Yes, we continue to live in a time like Jesus described, like Paul speaks of with Timothy, and we will until Jesus returns. These are last day days right now. So what should mark us as followers of Jesus in these last day days? First, we must exercise discernment when it comes to spiritual claims. Jesus wanted to make sure his first followers weren't duped by false claims about spiritual reality, by those who were playing rescuer and savior who are acting like messiahs, who are actually false prophets claiming to speak for God, but not let's bring this into our time for a moment. Jesus is either Messiah, God's promised rescuing ruler, our saving King, or he's not. And if he is, if he is, then whatever he says about spiritual reality is true. And any time his claims bump up against or in conflict with other claims, if he is Messiah, God's saving king, then his claims are true and every other claim is not. And I know that doesn't sound very great in our ears as Canadians. The reigning plausibility structure is something that you would call religious pluralism. It's the belief that all religions are equally valid. Now that differs from religious freedom, which means everyone is free, to practice different beliefs. Ah, yes, that I would, <laughs> I would heartily affirm and fight for religious freedom. But religious pluralism makes a different claim. It says um, every belief is equally valid. And it doesn't take long, more than three seconds of actual thought to know that just can't be the case. That can't be true. Um, the current Dalai Lama, for example, the Buddhist leader, he says that Jesus is a great teacher but definitely not the Son of God and the Savior of the world. Okay, so that's a different claim to the claim that Jesus makes of himself. One of them is right, one of them is wrong, or maybe both of them are wrong. That's possible too. The teachings of Islam say that Jesus is a prophet, but there's no way that he's actually God in the flesh. That would be blasphemy from their perspective. But the book of Matthew starts by declaring that Jesus is God with us. And so he either is or he is not. Jesus' warning here is totally applicable to us who are seeking to follow Jesus, you see. We don't get to make up who God is or what is true of spiritual reality. We get to receive it from God as revealed in the scriptures and most perfectly in the person and teaching of Jesus. False teachers, then and now, will lead other people astray. And it's true. And so we as a church, as the people of God, need to be aware and not deceived. Followers of Jesus also sometimes are desperate for easy solutions, especially when they're facing pressure from their outside culture. And they will look to Messiah figures, political leaders who seem to offer quick fixes, but who would lead God's people to actually Turn away from our faithful commitment to Jesus and his ways. We have to resist false messiahs in our world today too. So what are we to be marked by? A deep trust in what Jesus says about ultimate reality. Don't be deceived, he says. You know, when it comes to um, detecting counterfeit bills, do you know how bank tellers were taught to do that? Um, you, you, find, you, you learn how to know what a counterfeit bill is by looking at and paying attention to the real That is the same that is needed for God's people in our moment. We set our gaze on the true Savior, Jesus, and we follow him in everything. We train our attention on the scriptures and what they teach. That's why we're working through so carefully all the way through Matthew's gospel. We set our gaze on Jesus, the true one, so we can spot counterfeits. Second, we need to be marked with fearlessness. Jesus says, see to it that you're not alarmed. Such things must happen, but the end's still to come. Yes, there are days of great distress and persecution that Jesus describes. They're still relevant for our time. In Jesus' time, some of his readers were fed to lions. Some of Matthew's readers would have been lit on fire and used as torches to light the city of Rome. That's their scenario. This is a brutal time in history for believers. But the fact is, the most brutal time in history to date has been throughout the 20th century. It's the last 100 years, have been harder on Christians than any other period in history. Jesus' words for his followers to stand firm, they're needed every bit as much today as in that. And that's why we keep praying for our persecuted brothers and sisters around the world. They face real persecution, imprisonment, loss of property, beatings, and even death. Now, I think Jesus could have a, two horizons in mind through all of this. He's giving a sign to the the disciples about the coming destruction of the temple. That will happen in AD 70. Jesus was right. Not one stone left on the other. But some would say that Jesus is also speaking of a time of great tribulation before Jesus' second coming. I think that's possible too. I think he could have two horizons in mind. But either way, the point remains, Jesus tells them and us, don't be alarmed, don't panic. See, to follow Jesus in our day and age, it will put us at odds with a lot of the values of the world around us. And that might lead us to want to maybe downplay our identity with Jesus or identifying with Jesus. Oh, it might have social implications. It might make us feel uncomfortable at times. There might be minor inconveniences for us. But are you going to give up on your faithfulness to Jesus because of that? Why not panic? Here's why not. Because we know the God who holds the stars and everything together, moment by moment. We know him as our father. And we want to live in faithfulness to Jesus and his way, even when it's costly. Here's another mark for us. Jesus speaks of a time when the love of people will grow cold. Boy, a mark for those who say they're followers of Jesus needs to be just the opposite, of that, a passionate love for God and for others. Remember in the text from 2 Timothy 3, Paul says this, just pay attention to the love language here. People will be lovers of themselves, man, just this self-centeredness, just it's got to be about loving me, man. Love yourself first. How often do you hear that kind of language? Lovers of themselves, lovers of money, without love, not lovers of the good. Lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God. That is going in exactly the opposite direction of who we are to be as Jesus followers. Jesus says they will they will know that you're my disciples. Why? Because of your church. You you know this word. Ready? It's simple. It's love. It's you'll know. You'll be able to spot a Jesus follower because of the way that they love those around them. That's how you'll spot a Jesus follower. We're to be marked by the exact opposite Of what's typical in the world around. So I ask again, what would stir our hearts to love? What cultivates that warmth? What keeps us from our love growing cold? Boy, it comes from the practice of putting ourselves in the presence of the one who loved us so deeply. He would he would put aside his heavenly throne and enter into the mess of this world, taking on human flesh and then letting that be broken apart so that we could be forgiven and made whole. When I set my, my fix my eyes on him and what he has done, when I let that story get inside of me and work on me, my only reasonable response is a life of love and gratitude to God and then expressing that in my love for those around me in practical loving ways. Followers of Jesus, if that's you this morning, we must be marked by love in an age where it runs cold. We must be fearless and we must be discerning between what is right and wrong and then choose to do the Jesus way. But now we have to remember, Jesus is still speaking to his first century audience in his own setting. Of those five biblical scholars I read this week that disagreed on a whole lot of stuff, they all agreed on this. What Jesus says next applies to what would happen in just a few decades at the destruction of Jerusalem, the destruction of the temple. Jesus cares for his church. is preparing them for hard times. Listen to verse 15. So when you see standing in the holy place the abomination that causes desolation spoken of through the prophet Daniel, let the reader understand, like pay attention to what we're saying here. Then let those who are in Judea, that's the area where Jerusalem is, let them flee to the mountains. Now, the abomination that causes desolation, that's language from Daniel. And that phrase was applied during the Maccabean Revolt, where Antiochus Epiphanes had a statue of himself erected in the temple, and he sacrificed swine on the altar of Jerusalem in 167 BC. That was a desecrating act. And Matthew reminds the reader, pay attention, this same kind of terrible act, not unlike the Maccabean Revolt, it's again on the horizon, that's coming again. And when you see that sorts of things start to happen, boy, that'll include the siege of Jerusalem starts in AD 66. Historians tell us of that time where Romans began to do many things that would defile the land and the temple Jesus wants his followers to understand when the Romans begin to act that way, a sort of rehashing of that history, get out of Dodge. Flee the city and do it quickly. Like They might be tempted to join with one of these false messiahs who says, let's take up the swords and and kick out the Romans and push back. Jesus says, no, that's not the Jesus way. You guys need to leave now. And what he writes next sounds like what we tell people to do in a fire drill. Ready? Verse 17, let no one go on the housetop, or let no one on the housetop go down to take anything out of the house. Let no one in the field go back to get their cloak. How dreadful it will be in those days for pregnant women and nursing moms. Pray that your flight, meaning out of Judea, of Jerusalem and the area, will not take place in winter or on the Sabbath. For then there will be great distress, unequaled from the beginning of the world until now, and never to be equaled again. Josephus tells us of Parents who are roasting their kids for dinner because of the siege. This is the ugliest of sorts of times. Yes, that kind of thing gets rehashed again in history. And it may very well be a great time of distress right before Jesus comes again, too. So this could be a double horizon thing again. I think so. But we know from the history books, this is a time of devastation for Jerusalem and the temple. Jesus says, when the Romans begin to act like this, get out of the city, run for your lives. Verse 22, if those days had not been cut short, no one would survive. But for the sake of the elect, those days will be shortened. At that time, if anyone says to you, look here, there's a Messiah. There he is. Don't believe it. Don't get taken up with false messianic movements. Don't do that. Or if there's a... For false prophets and false, uh, false messiahs probably and false prophets will appear and perform great signs and wonders to deceive, if possible, even the elect. See, I've told you guys ahead of time. So if anyone tells you, there he is out in the wilderness, don't go out. Or here he is in the inner room, don't believe it. Notice, Jesus is preparing his disciples not to be deceived by messianic pretenders. Don't be deceived if someone tells you, hey, he's come back, you'll see him in the wilderness. No, Jesus says. There will be no question about my coming. Listen to what the next verse says, 27. For as lightning that comes from the east is visible even in the west, so will be the coming of the Son of Man. Okay, so far, Jesus has been telling his disciples about the signs before the coming of the destruction of Jerusalem. He's protecting his people from the coming Romans, but could it be that he's also protecting them from thinking that somehow these historic signs are about Jesus' second coming. He says, like, could it be that he's saying these false prophets and false messiahs, these are not signs of my return. Don't be duped by that kind of thinking. It will be clear as a bolt of lightning when I come. Let's keep reading. And here's where we need to know. This is where many scholars would say, okay, now Jesus shifts to speak about the second coming in particular. Others aren't so sure. I'm not going to resolve that today, by the way. Let's listen to what the text says. Wherever there is a carcass, there the vultures will gather. Immediately after the, the distress of those days could mean the destruction of Jerusalem or perhaps a time of great pressure on the church right before the return of Jesus. The sun will be darkened and the moon will not give its light. The stars will fall from the sky and the heavenly bodies will be shaken. Now, this language is symbolic language borrowed from Isaiah 13 and 34. Go and read those chapters again. It speaks in both cases of a time of God's judgment on evil. So Jesus is talking about a time uh, of of God's judgment where he makes the the things that are wrong right again. Some would say that's describing Jesus' own death and resurrection. He pays for evil in his own body on the cross. Evil itself is judged in Jesus' body. Or it could be referring to Jesus' second coming, where there is a, a dividing of Those who followed Jesus and loved with his love from those who didn't, could be either. Then will appear, verse 30, a sign of the Son of Man in heaven. Then all the peoples of the earth will mourn when they see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of heaven. Now remember, Jesus himself again quotes that when? To the high priest right before his death and resurrection, he says, and from now on. So Jesus quotes this about his own death, resurrection, and ascension. Maybe he's speaking about that moment. He's going to return, he says, with great power and great glory. Pardon me, not return. That's not the word there. Let me keep it straight. When they see the man of uh, Son of Man coming on the clouds of heaven with power and great glory. And he will send his angels or messengers, angelos could be translated as both of those, with a loud trumpet call And they will gather his elect from the four winds, from one end of the heavens to the other. Could be at the end of time, could be God's missionaries going out to gather in all of those who will put their trust in Jesus. That's how some read it, others read it as the end of time. Now, it seems to me that Jesus is probably speaking on two planes. The present, more or less, and the future. But it's all about just one topic, and that topic is this the reign of the king of the kingdom. Yes, Jesus will ascend to the father and he will receive all authority. So he already reigns. The kingdom is already inaugurated, but there will be a time when he comes again to finally and fully consummate the kingdom, to judge evil and usher in his once and for all peaceful reign. And that's really the answer to his disciples' question. Tell us about your coming and of the end of the age. And so I think Jesus is saying something like this. Yes, I am the king. The destruction of the temple that I have predicted, when that happens, that will show that I was right about what I predicted all along. This event will vindicate my words about its destruction. But... Don't take the destruction of the temple as though that's the sign of the end of all things. No, it's not. I'm already king, but there will be a time that no one knows about yet when I return and fully set up shop to bring about the kingdom in all its fullness. And that's why Jesus says what he does next. Verse 32, now learn this lesson from the fig tree. As soon as its twigs get tender and its leaves come out, you know that summer is near. Even so, when you see all these things, I think he's pointing back to the signs and warnings about the destruction of the temple. When you see all these things, you know that it's near, right at the door. Truly, I tell you, this generation will certainly not pass away until all these things have happened. And guess what? The destruction of the temple happens within the lifetime of that generation. It does. Heaven and earth will not pass away, but my words will never pass. Pardon me, heaven and earth will pass away, but my words never will. I know, deep breath in and out. That was a lot to take in. What Jesus says next is what really makes clear what we need to know about his second coming. He says this, but about that day and hour, and I think he's certainly speaking about his second coming now, about that day and hour when I consummate the kingdom, nobody knows Not even the angels of heaven, nor the Son, but only the Father. As it was in the days of Noah, so it will be at the coming of the Son of Man. For in the days before the flood, people were eating and drinking, marrying and giving themselves in marriage, up to the day Noah entered the ark. And they knew nothing about what would happen until the flood came and took them all away. That is how it will be at the coming of the Son of Man. Two men will be in the field, one will be taken, the other left. Two women will be grinding at a handmill; one will be taken, the other left. Therefore, keep watch. That is, that's the imperative. What do we need to do? How do we need to live? Keep watch. Because you don't know the day that your Lord will come. But understand this, if the owner of the house had known at what time of night the thief was coming, he would have kept watch. Wouldn't have let this house be broken into. So also you must be ready because the Son of Man will come at an hour when you don't expect him. Okay, so Jesus is answering their question about when now. When is this going to happen? When is the fullness of the kingdom coming? I'm not telling you, is Jesus' answer. Because I don't even know. Only the Father knows that. Only the Father knows. But here's what you need to do is keep watch. The point for us trying to figure out when Jesus is going to return, pointless. Distraction. Waste of time. Get on with doing what Jesus has clearly taught you to do. Continue to follow Jesus leading in every area of your life, that is gospel shaped living and about gospel proclamation. We might left be left wondering, however, but maybe Jesus promises like they're not they're not coming true, maybe this whole thing is a farce, you know what? Um, Jesus kept his promise that the, the temple would be destroyed and it was, and Jesus promised to return, and he will. But you might think, man it's been so long, you know what? Peter, even in the first century, was having to answer that question. He says this, don't forget this one thing, dear friends, with the Lord. A day is like a thousand years, and a thousand years is like a day. The Lord is not slow in keeping his promise, as some understand slowness. Instead, he is patient with you, not wanting anyone to perish, but everyone to come to repentance. Notice what this says about God's heart. What's God's heart like? Patient, loving, wanting everyone to return to him. Is that your heart for people? That's that question asks me. And Jesus, is, is he being slow in keeping his promise? No. Peter says it's, like, it's been like two days or just a little bit more. So not at all slow. So we don't miss the point of this whole discussion. Jesus then is going to tell us some parables. This goes into chapter 25 now, but I'm going to read you the one that's in 24. He says this, how are we to be these people in the time between the times? This is how, 45, who then is the faithful and wise servant whom the master has put in charge of the servants in his household to give them food at their proper time? It will be good for that servant whose master finds him doing so when he returns. Doing what? What the master asked. Truly, I tell you, he will put him in charge of all his possessions. But suppose that servant is wicked and says to himself, man, my my master's taking a long time. And then he begins to beat his fellow servants and to eat and drink with drunkards. The master of that servant will come on a day when he does not expect him and at an hour that he's not aware of. He will cut him to pieces and assign him a place with the hypocrites where there will be weeping. And gnashing of teeth. Now, I realize that last sentence is a little bit like, whoa, cut him to pieces. What is going on here? Um, I would want to say this, though. Uh, that's not a literal description. The person is described as actually being alive and well with another group of people in the next phrase. What does it mean then? It does refer to judgment. It means this for those who divide their lives, Like they think they can claim to serve God on the one hand, but in reality, they're like beating their servants and and living in self-indulgence on the other. Their lives, they've divided their lives and their lives will then be divided for all of eternity. That's what hypocrisy is. It's living a life that lacks integrity. It's being one person over here and another over there. It's saying this and living that. Their final destiny is that God gives them over to that and it will be frustrating, like weeping and gnashing of teeth. So Jesus warns his hearers then and us now, don't live a divided life. So now what are we to do? i am going to close with this because I know I'm a little over time here. But you guys are hanging in there, right? You're quiet, either because you're paying attention or you're asleep. But I see eyes open still, so we're good. All right. One of the things I love to do is to cook for my family. Now, I haven't always been very good at it, but I'm getting better. And one of my favorite things to do is, is just to like, cook a lavish meal for my wife. It might be for a special occasion or it might just be that she's at work and I want to surprise her with something really nice. So I'll sometimes spend hours prepping and pulling together all the right ingredients and, and using my time and energy to get it just right so that when I see her come in the house and she smells the smells and comes up the stairs, I see this look on her face and I can say, look, look what I've made you. I know it's not much. It might not even taste that good at points, but I did it for you. I love you. You see that look on her face, knowing that that's true. When Jesus returns, I want to be able to look into his face, to the one who loved me, to the grave and back, and I want to look in his face and see, look what I've done. Look what I made for you. I know it's not much. I know it's not but it's the best I could do, and I did it for you. That's what I want my life to be like at the end, when he returns. This is fruitful, gospel-centered ministry. It's why we keep our focus on the missional task that God has given us. If we as a church are shaped around the story of Jesus, the way he loved us and died for us while we were still his enemies, if that's our story, then we need to live the same way and take every opportunity to be making that meal for him So that when he comes back, I can say, what's in my hands? What's in my hands when he returns? I want it to be a delicious meal. I want it to be serving those around me. And I want for us as a church to always be on that page. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, when you come, I want you to find me and us as a community doing what you've asked us to do. Living a life of love, focused on the task you've given us. Lord, lead us back to that place of saying, right, I do have a purpose in life. It's to love my King Jesus and to love what he loves. Lord, make us that people today by your grace. And maybe for those who are here and they don't yet know you, but they're ready to say, yeah, I put my trust in that saving king. I want to be ready for that day. God, we thank you that you receive us by your grace, that we can trust you, we, we can confess our sins, confess you as Lord and know that you forgive us today. So Lord, if you're tapping on someone's heart today, Lord, I pray that they'd open themselves to you in faith. Amen.